As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and it's Tuesday, which means it's time to talk Americans abroad. To help me do so, I'm joined by a man who always keeps a clean sheet on his podcast debut. <laughs> it's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe, and good luck navigating that introduction. Yeah, I mean, hello, Taylor. I would just like to point out I'm fairly confident, borderline certain that I did not keep a clean sheet on my my podcast <laughs> debut. I don't think it was clean. I think it was messy. I think my performance was uneven and rocky at times, uh, but I'm going to take the compliment and pretend like what actually happened didn't happen. I'm, I feel like you're being self-critical, which is what you want from a debutante. You don't want them coming in and saying like, yeah, I bossed that mic. I did everything right. I said everything right. There were no slip ups. You want them being humble so that there's room to grow. Uh, and I think that's maybe what we can talk about with Chris Richards, who we are going to talk about in a little bit when it comes to his debut for Hoffenheim. He got the start. They did not get the win. I have some thoughts. We're going to talk other Americans abroad, some whom, whom were in action, some who were not. Looking in your direction, Christian Pulisic. We do also want to remind folks that we have another live broadcast this week. It will be myself and Ryan Bailey, Thursday at 6 p.m. on the Stereo app. Joe, you and I did that last week. That was your introduction to Stereo, I believe, or your first time uh, speaking on mic in Stereo. Uh, what did you make of it? I had tons of fun. Listeners asked awesome questions. You and I had a fun conversation about the La Masia Soccer 101 episode that mm-hmm. I'd done earlier last week. I had a blast, and I I think you and Ryan are going to have so much fun doing your second show together later this week. Yeah, so if you want to tune in for that one, you can download the Stereo app. Uh, You can find my username, which is RockwellTSS. The episode will be scheduled there for you to listen to. We talked about Joe's last week, as he said. This week, I'm doing uh, the top-scoring Americans in Europe uh, at club level. Obviously, I'm not tracking all the international goals, but it's a topic that I think I said this in the show. I've I've looked it up a number of different times because I'm just curious who it is, and there's never any sort of satisfactory result. We'll get who had the best European campaign for one season or who's the top-scoring American in the Premier League, but you don't get it across all competitions, and that's what I was trying to figure out. I think I have some answers. I think they are surprising. So I look forward to airing that episode and then chatting with Ryan and answering some questions, getting some ideas for other 101 episodes that Joe could do or I could do or Ryan could do. Uh, but that is for Thursday 
Thursday at 6 p.m. For now, Joe, let's start with the positive. At least I think it was positive. Let's start Let's start with Chris Richards, who gets his first start for Hoffenheim. They lose 3-1 to to Eintracht Frankfurt. When a team concedes three goals, I tend to immediately assume that the defense was bad, that there were lots of mistakes. Having watched this one pretty closely... I'm inclined to say it was a solid debut for Richards, but I would love to hear your thoughts. Very solid debut. That's where I stand on this. Mm. I don't think, I don't think Richards was directly at fault for any of these goals. I'm not even sure he was indirectly at fault for any of them. I, that's the first thing I did when looking at this game to, to see whether or not Richards should be blamed for this. What, you know, what we should take away from the goals that Hoffenheim conceded. Goal number one that Eintracht Frankfurt scored was a transition down Hoffenheim's right side, which was the opposite side that Chris Richards was playing on. Richards is playing as a left-sided center back in a back three. So, number one, he's already absolved of that that you know, <laughs> problem on that goal. The second goal is a free kick, and the ball comes into his area in the box. But I think this is more of a miscommunication between all of the defenders in Hoffenheim's line, and I don't think they know exactly how they want to defend this. Taylor, did you see that second goal that Frankfurt scored? Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. This is one of those, in my mind, examples of the player who is closest to the player who scores oftentimes gets uh, posterized. And in this case, it does look for a moment like he has failed to track the runner. But in actuality, he is tracking a runner. It's just not the one who scores. But even then, he does sort of not do the best job of sticking with them. But the uh, who was it who scored the second goal for uh, for Frankfurt? That's going to have to be a Google for me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, uh, Indica scored. Uh, but he was, uh, Chris Richards was marking Tuta, the other center back. Uh, and he does let Tuta get a little bit goal side. I think a big part of that is that the back line for Hoffenheim do not keep a very straight line. Uh, they went the Harry Maguire route and a few people dropped too early. And so I think that was part of it for Richards was that he was assuming the line had been capped and then realized it hadn't, tries to make up the ground, does sort of get to Tuta, but certainly does not get to Indica, who does end up scoring the goal. But because Richards is right there, I feel like there are some people who are inclined to say like, oh, he should have done a better job. He should have screened that or blocked it off. But I think that's that's a bit harsh for him. And I, and I agree with you on the first one that if anything, he is tracking his runner on the far side pretty well. He does a good job to get in position, get goal side, keep the pace. And then the ball just goes in. And it's that sort of like, yeah, he's there. He's doing what he can. He's in the shot, but he's not responsible. So I'm with you. No responsibility for the first two. What about the third, Joe? The third goal that Frankfurt scores a counterattack after Hoffenheim lose the ball in the final third. So Frankfurt get on the ball. Richards is actually high up the field trying to pressure that initial pass that starts the break for Frankfurt. He can't stop the pass. He can't close the ball down in time. But that's not his fault. He had so much ground to cover. He he made an effort to close the ball down, but it didn't end up mattering. Frankfurt could play a little looping ball over the top, get into the attacking half and score. But my my ruling, Taylor, and I think you'll agree with me on mm-hmm. this, not Richards' fault, right? Not a lot he could do to change the outcome of this play. No, it, th- so it was Daichi Kamada, I think, who gets the ball, turns, and then plays that great diagonal over the top. That's what leads to the the counterattack that leads to that goal. It's from a Hoffenheim set piece, and that's where that spacing comes from. It's also because Richards, I think, is holding back a little bit and trying to split the difference between holding the line, making sure that they're not overwhelmed if that ball is cleared directly. And there are two attackers there, so I think it's, it's a good to have the numbers. But then he does have to try to step out to Kamada, who I think he had done a really good job of containing. He did a really good job of sticking right on his back so routinely in the first and second half when the ball would go into Kamada's feet he oftentimes had to go back with it because if he tried to turn or tried to take on Richards it was a it was a it was a battle and I don't think he always won those and so like 
I say that just to say Richards did a very good job for the most part. In this one, the difference was that when he was tracking Kamada in the past, it was a five-yard gap that he had to close or had to track him for five or ten yards. This time, he's sprinting 20 yards out to a player who has already turned and has sort of open, like, rain on the field and is able to hit that ball. So, again, it's like the assist to the assist, and you might think that maybe that makes him at fault, but I think that he sprints forward 20, 30 yards to try to make that play and then still makes an effort to get back uh, but just isn't able to get there. I don't really blame him either. So, yeah, I think 0 for 3 when it comes to responsibility for the goals. And if we look outside the goals, now that we have that all settled, I thought Chris Richards just looked really comfortable in this game. He looked like he was a starting Bundesliga center back. He he wasn't perfect in this game. And even if he was, I don't think we should go overboard here. I think we still need to be measured and cautious in terms of how we talk about him. But he he looked so solid on both sides of the ball. His distribution, yep. even playing on the side of his non-dominant foot. Richards is right-footed. He was playing on the left side of a back three. He was both able to ping some beautiful lob yeah, left-footed was. passes. He had a great one in the 77th minute that created a shot for Hoffenheim. And then then the shot was blocked and Richards ended up being the one player that won the ball back with counter pressure. So he had some great left-footed dimes and some great pressing moments. And then he also was able to open up his hips a little bit and use his right foot to find an open man in midfield on that right side of midfield. So he'd play a more direct, low-driven ball into that space on the right half of the field as well. Richards looked like he knew how to pass the ball, and he does. He's learned that at Bayern Munich. And he also looked so comfortable sweeping in behind the line defensively to clear the danger, to get there and, and stay composed on the ball as well, to connect play after he would recover the ball behind the line. Richards just looked like he knew he knew what to do. He wasn't out of place here. No, I agree. I, I and to the extent that I had like written down, he very much looks like a player who came through the Bayern Munich Academy. It's it like this is a very minor example of it, but it's the best one I can think of. There's a moment in the first half when he is, again, he's dealing in a 1v1, kind of dealing with Kamada. Kamada doesn't get around him, but does sort of play it off Richards, and it's going out for a corner kick. It's kind of rolling down the line. Richards sprints 15 yards to be able to get there just in time, but then isn't sliding in. It's not a desperation tackle. It's just he he covers the ground and then really, like, definitely with the outside of his right foot, just pokes the ball out of bounds for a throw in and Instead of a corner, doesn't lose his fitting and then slowly jogs to like not even slowly, but then just kind of jogs back to the middle, gets set and, and is in the right position. And it was just like the tidiness of that maneuver of just, oh, ball's going out of bounds. Evaluate the situation, poke it out for a throw in, but then make sure you're immediately in position to defend that throw in. You can just see the discipline of that Bayern training, the discipline of that defense on display there. So I, I saw that. And then to your point, I saw the distribution that I'm going to assume is a, a priority for Bayern Academy uh, players, both in the long ball, but also a few times in the first half when he would just take a touch back across with the outside of his right and then ping a ball 30, 40 yards upfield into the feet of a teammate, uh, occasionally splitting three and four Eintracht players. And so for a, again, a debutante at center back, this could have easily been one of those games that we talked about in the past where it's don't stand out in a negative way and that is standing out in a positive way. I would argue that he did stand out in a positive way and made smart decisions and did a good job defensively and and so overall a, a positive result. We haven't talked as much about his defending though and I know that you've got some points there. I do as well. So let's talk about what we saw from him in a 1v1 defending capacity. Absolutely. I remember, before I get into Richards, I should say, I remember when Mark McKenzie made his Genk debut, and we talked about it on this show. Yeah, the yeah. moment that I brought to light from Mark McKenzie in that game that he played in Belgium 
was a 1v1 defensive moment. He was staying with a smaller, quicker attacker, and, and he kept his footing, he kept staying with that player, and he wasn't able to, the, the opposing attacker wasn't able to get McKenzie off his game. I noticed a similar thing from Richards in this game. It's the 32nd minute, and and Frankfurt are playing the ball over the top to Andre Silva, their number nine in this game, and Richards shifts over from his left-sided center back spot all the way over, kind of to the middle, and then eventually to force to force Silva to Silva's left, Richards right on the opposite side of the field that Richards started on, and and Richards just sticks right to him. He stays with him. He forces Silva wider and wider, and then backwards, and eventually forces Silva to play the ball backwards. That composure and in speed, yeah. first of all, but the composure after that and the patience to not dive in, to not get freaked out, to not get flustered. That was maturity right there. That was that was really smart defending and really capable defending to eliminate a real moment of danger for Eintracht Frankfurt. Mm-hmm. Was that did you say that was first half? Yeah, that's in the 32nd minute of the first half. That's really interesting because I have basically the mirror image uh, in the second half. I think around the 50th minute, it's another ball into Andre Silva, uh, who is clearly going to try to take Richards on and either get a shot off or maybe find that open pass and tries a few little touches, a few little moves. And Richards not only doesn't bite, not only doesn't really give him space, but effectively closes him down, forces Andre Silva to turn and drop the ball back outside the box. And I mean, maybe you want the defender to win the ball cleanly and launch a counterattack and score a goal. That's the ideal, ideal, ideal. But to make an in form attacker change their mind go back and reset the attack I mean that again is a very smart play and a very solid play I don't just want to then go look for the negatives Joe but uh, to your earlier point like we should keep it calm we're not then saying that he is now the automatic starter alongside John Brooks in, in the center of defense some people will do that we don't need to are there any things that you would like to see him continue to work on or think he needs to develop a little bit more from what we saw in this game I've got quick uh, a quick three bullet points here. So bullet point number one, Richards didn't win a couple of balls in midfield that I think he could have or maybe even should have won. He overstepped and then let an attacker slip by him or or he wasn't able to make the challenge that I think he he's capable of making. So that's number one. I want to see how that develops in the coming weeks. Number two, I think he overhit a couple of passes. Well, that wasn't a big problem in this game. His passing was really good, but something to keep an eye on at least. And then the third point for me is is Richards took a couple too many touches, a few too many touches at times in this game. I think he could have moved the ball a little bit faster in the back for Hoffenheim, but especially with those last two points, I'm really, really grasping at straws. So if we're summarizing, some things that maybe he could work on would be winning those 50-50s, being a little bit tighter in possession, and being, uh, what was the third one? That third one was him just taking too many touches. So I think it fits under that being tighter in possession category. Cool, okay. All right. Well, we shall see how things progress for Chris Richards. We would assume he will continue to get meaningful minutes for Hoffenheim. We hope Christian Pulisic keeps getting meaningful minutes for Chelsea. He was not in the squad this past weekend, which prompted some people on Twitter to be very nervous. Uh, one host of this show to be slightly nervous and post uh, a- anxious memes. Thomas Tuchel, after the game, said that uh, he was dealing with some family issues. That's why Pulisic was not involved in the game this weekend. At first, I I was... More nervous about this, I think because I had seen some of those reports that Pulisic or his family members had talked about how they didn't really vibe with Thomas Tuchel, how uh, Christian Pulisic was happy to leave Dortmund. But I think I'm maybe putting too much stock into rumors and things like that, whereas in actuality, Thomas Tuchel has gone on record several times as saying he's really excited to work with Pulisic. He knows how he wants to use him. He feels like he can help him like like get the squad going really quickly. Pulisic, for his part, has said equally complimentary things. 
so I think I'm less nervous than I was. I do want to talk a little bit about how Thomas Tuchel is going to use him. But Joe, did you share any of that anxiety or were you pretty calm about this? I feel like you tend to be a little bit more rational than me when it comes to these types of moments. I mean, that might be true in this case, because I think my reaction to this whole situation mm-hmm. was just, this is fine. This is fine. Yeah. We don't know what the family issues were or are. So I guess that is something that, I mean, maybe we should be supporting Polisic about. I don't know what's going on, right? And so I don't mm-hmm. want to speak lightly of those things necessarily. But in, if we're looking at just the on-field stuff and is Polisic going to get on the field or not, I don't know the answer to that question, but I don't think that's a bad thing. So let me explain what I mean. Since Thomas Tuchel took over, Christian Pulisic has come off the bench three times and been out of the squad once. And that was this whole family issue thing against Sheffield United that we're talking about right now. So he hasn't been starting. And in those games, it's been Hakeem Ziyech, Kai Havertz, Mason Mount, Timo Werner, and Callum Hudson-Odoi, who have all started over Christian Pulisic in Thomas Tuchel's various attacking positions that, again, we're going to talk about in just a minute. So I read this whole situation. I read this whole Christian Pulisic not playing situation as... Right now, he's not good enough to play. Right now, he's not performing in training at the level of those other players. And then after that happened, now he's dealing with these family issues, or maybe that maybe that wasn't a thing in the first place. We simply don't know, and I'm not going to speculate. But at the end of the day, it's fine. He's a good player. Christian Pulisic is a very, very good player, but so are those other players that I just named a minute ago. And when Christian Pulisic is good enough in playing at a level that's high enough in training and is going to fit in Thomas Tuchel's system like Thomas Tuchel wants... Then he's going to get on the field, and I think at the end of the day, this is all going to turn out just fine. That's interesting, because I had seen those reports saying, or at least a few different articles saying that basically, like, because Tuchel knows what he's got in Christian Pulisic, he's worked with him before, he knows how to utilize him, he's more interesting and interested in figuring out everybody else in the squad, and, like, that sort of makes sense, and then if I think about it for three more seconds... I'm sort of like, but if you know what you're getting and you have a proven entity, why wouldn't you use that like that player and then build around that player? So that didn't make as much sense. So are you leaning towards maybe just other players are ahead of him to go with the uh, Jurgen Klinsmann line? That's where I'm leaning right now. I wish I knew what was really going on. But yeah, the whole I know what Christian Pulisic can bring, so I'm not going to play him thing in a league where competition is really high and you want to be winning games after you're coming into a new job. That line of reasoning doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me, but hey, I've been wrong before. It'll happen again. I mean, I think there's, I mean, we, we all will be. I, uh, so no, <laughs> no worries there, Joe. I think, I guess I can see it if you are trying to, like, if you're Thomas Tuchel and you've just been appointed, maybe if your approach is, look, we're not going to win the league this season. We're probably not going to make Champions League this season. So for me right now, my priority, or we might not make it. We still could. But my priority right now is to, like, figure out the foundational blocks and then I can build from there as opposed to kind of parachuting in, figuring it out on the fly, and then having to kind of re- retool once you get to the summer. Maybe he's starting from the ground up midseason, which is risky, certainly. That's one possibility. The other uh, is, I guess, what you've mentioned that maybe Pulisic just needs to work harder. And then the third, uh, credit to an article from uh, NBC Sports written by Joe uh, Joe Prince-Wright, who essentially argues based on some quotes, some comments, that we actually are going to see Christian Pulisic utilized in an entirely different role. Because Thomas Ducal, as you said, is going with like the 3-4-2-1. My assumption was that he was going to be one of those two, that he'd be one of those slightly wider, sometimes interior attackers, And it sounds like what may end up being the case is that he gets utilized, and I know people are going to roll their eyes, and 
it's utilizes a false nine that he may end up being the one who drops in and links up play and create space for Timo Werner to run into. We know Timo Werner's got some pace or Kai Havertz when he's back or Zayish or Mason Mount or whomever else. And that that may be how he ends up getting utilized, because then you have Pulisic trying to take people on and running at people, which seems to be a strong suit. And you don't have him trying to do the defensive work as much. Joe, is that a position you'd like to see Christian Pulisic uh, tried out in? Or would you rather him be in one of those sort of two attacking positions that are wider, still have to do some defensive work, but maybe are more familiar to him? I'd rather him play wider. I think that's where he's best. I think Christian Pulisic's best skill set is his dribbling ability. I think you lose some of that when you play him in a central space. Not You don't lose all of that because I think Berhalter for the men's national team is going to use him in almost a left half space, that left Mm -hmm. channel, not quite wide, but not quite central. And I think that works fine for him, but Greg Berhalter is always going to give him freedom to rotate wide on the left and get the ball and drive at an opposing right back. And so I think even that role fits him very well. If Christian Pulisic plays as the central attacking player, maybe that's a way we can phrase it. To yeah. Not ruffle some Let's go with others. Yeah. If he, if he's playing as that central highest at times attacking player, but, but responsible for dropping in and then allowing the, the two players next to him on either side to run in behind, that's fine. And I'm confident that Thomas Tuchel is going to be able to make that system work best for Chelsea. And so that's, that ultimately probably trumps what Christian Pulisic's mm-hmm. role is in that system. But I'm not altogether convinced that that's going to be his spot, that Christian Pulisic's going to be playing as that highest central attacker who drops in. I still think in a couple of games under Thomas Tuchel so far, we've seen a 3-4-2-1 shape in addition to a 3-4-1-2. And mm-hmm. it's very fluid. It's very flexible. But there are still opportunities for Christian Pulisic to play as a left-sided or a right-sided attacking midfielder underneath a Olivier Giroud or underneath a Tammy Abraham and play in a role that maybe fits him a little bit more naturally. So I'm just, I'm in a wait and see pattern right now to see where he's going to end up. But I think either way, it'll be fine. But ultimately, my preference is to have him a little bit wider. All right. I think the key the key takeaway there, Joe, is number one, let's urge caution. Let's yes. all not get too nervous. Yes. And number two, that yeah, either, wherever he gets utilized, we can rest like, Assured, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, Thomas Tuchel like is utilizing him in the way that like best benefits the team and maybe gets the best out of him, and then we can see how he evolves and performs from there. But we shouldn't be too worried yet. Maybe in a few more games, if he's still not playing, or if it's then it, like it goes from family reasons to like he stubbed his toe. Oh, he wasn't feeling it today. <laughs> if it's more excuses, then I won't. I won't love it so much. But for now, I think caution is a uh, a good thing to urge, Joe. So way to be rational. I appreciate that. You got it. I'll, I'll do my best anytime. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got more Americans abroad to talk about. But first, we're going to take a break to hear from some of today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. 
With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. We are back. Joe, we had many Americans in action. We focused on one in Chris Richards. We focused on one who was not in action in the form of Christian Pulisic. Who should we talk about next? Let's talk about Weston McKenney, Taylor. Okay. He's, he started and played 65 minutes in Juventus's 2 nothing win over Roma on Sunday. And he played in a very familiar spot to Weston McKenney at this point under Andrea Pirlo. He played on the left side of midfield, but in that hybrid role where right? yeah. they are back defending. He's playing as a left midfielder. When they're attacking, he's tucking inside or combining with Cristiano Ronaldo and Alexandro in this game, at least against Roma. So he knows his role at this point. And so for me, I've stopped looking so much at the intricacies of his role and more about the intricacies of McKenney's game and how he's playing and how he's developing. And I, I found something that I think is interesting. It was a little bit of a quieter game from Juventus and McKenney, even, even though they win this game two to nothing. Juve took an early lead in the 13th minute and, and weren't super inclined to attack and keep the ball a ton after that. But all that being said, I think McKenney showed some, some interesting things. And I have, I have two moments that I want to talk about in this game, two contrasting moments that are very, very similar. So, Taylor, do you have anything to add on McKenney or on Juventus before I get into these couple moments? Um, I, I have, well, I have a, a pre, a premature question for you and then I have a moment of my own that I enjoyed. My premature question is just going to be, uh, that McKenney had the lowest, like, performance rating that I saw on a couple different apps. We talked about that on the weekend review. So I would like to know if you saw anything that, like, maybe explains that. But first, I'd rather hear about the positives. So let's talk positives. Then we can get into why it might not have been a great performance from him. Okay, we can maybe maybe you can team me up for a little uh player rating rant when right. when I'm done with All the right. positives. I like that but plan. I've got I like that plan. My my first my, my first McKenney moment is a positive one. So it's the 47th minute to to set the scene for everybody. And Artur Arthur, what's the proper Portuguese pronunciation of that, Taylor? Do you know? I'm going with Artur for now. Okay. Until somebody Artur. tells me that I'm a moron. We'll go with Artur. No, yeah, yeah. That that works for me. I'm comfortable with that. All so right. it's it's Artur on the ball at, at at not the base of midfield but in in deeper central midfield. And McKenney slides over a little bit. He moves wider a little bit to make himself available for a pass. So Artur plays the ball into McKenney, who has his back to goal. So he's facing Artur and facing the ball as it comes to him. And when you're facing the play, you can't see what's behind you. That That's pretty straightforward, right? My, my eyes are facing forward. I, I don't have eyes in the back of my head. So in soccer, you're supposed to check your shoulders. You want to see what's around you. You have to get a, an accurate or at least semi-accurate picture of your surroundings. And that's exactly what McKenney does in this instance. He looks over his right shoulder so he can see the defender behind him. And using that scan, McKenney figures out that he's really not being pressured all that much. So he gets on the ball, takes a touch, finds a forward pass actually back to Artur and helps Juve get into the attacking half. It's so simple, but it's efficient. It's smart. And those are the kind of moments that you need from a possession midfielder, which is what Pirlo wants McKenney to eventually become or would like McKenney to eventually become. But uh, the next moment that I have in just a second kind of proves that McKenney's maybe not quite there yet. And I, I think this might fit into why his player rating wasn't exceptionally high in this game. But again, I've got I've got beef with that. All right. I want to I hear this moment first. OK, so the, it's the 50th minute now. So we're only three minutes after the last minute and everything is basically the same. Juve have the ball they're they're working it in possession a little bit. They've just won it back actually in this instance. And instead of Artur, it's Alexandro who steps forward and plays the ball into McKenney. McKenney's in a very similar spot on the field. His body positioning is basically the same. He's facing the play. He can't see behind him. 
And this time, as Sandro plays the ball, McKenney doesn't look around. And because he doesn't look, he doesn't know what's going on. He gets blitzed by a Roma defender and loses the ball all again because he didn't check his shoulders. And I make this kind of long, drawn-out comparison between these two moments, one where he checks, one where he doesn't check. I think if McKenney's going to continue to become this all-around midfielder, that needs to include his ability to play yeah. and become a consistent asset in possession. And I think these two moments illustrate that he's capable, but not consistent in possession quite yet. And that might be the next benchmark that he needs to hit in his career development. I agree. Because I think the the second one, the one where he's not checking, there's an argument to be made that there's more pressure. It's more of a sort of improvised pass in the moment because his teammate's under pressure, so he's kind of showing. But because he is then having to adapt and improvise, it makes it harder for him to check and be aware of everything that's happening. That's a very beneficial, positive way to read it. What I would say, to your point, is that that's the type of thing that a world-class player or a very good player does automatically. Even if Andres Iniesta is sort of having to think on the fly and move his positioning to make sure he's in position to help a teammate who's playing him the ball, he is still checking and evaluating even as he's receiving, even as that defender is initially making contact. It's kind of constantly updating. He's updating his software to like read the whole field. And McKinney, I think to your point in that moment, just doesn't do that because he's focused on the ball's coming into my feet. I need to make sure that I receive this ball. And it is that sort of like it's a few steps removed that means he's not going to take it cleanly, which means he is more vulnerable to being knocked off the ball or or coughing it up fairly cheaply. And I think, yeah, I agree with you then that that's a thing that as he gets more time under Pirlo and more training with Pirlo, I'm going to guess that's a thing that he will either have to develop and get a little bit tighter at and a little bit faster with. Or we won't see as much of him because early on, a lot of his p- positives, I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but I think like the positives he does bring elevate his performance and make him absolutely essential. As time goes, assuming Andrea Pirlo is still there, other people get more comfortable, other people kind of raise their game, and then it's about how McKinney responds. And if he does the same, then I think he becomes almost untouchable in that squad. If he continues to be a little bit loose and you never quite know if it's going to be the perfect touch or a slightly loose touch, that might not be a flexibility that Andrea Pirlo can give. And so I take your point. It's a thing that he has to kind of continue to develop. This is still overall a fine performance from yeah. McKinney in mm-hmm. this game. I think he brought the defensive energy. He pressured the ball. He he connected play in possession. But I just think this is the next step. This is the next level yep. for him to reach if he wants to continue developing at the rate he is now. And if he doesn't ever reach that step, that's fine. He's still a hugely valuable player. He might not be a starter at Juventus forever, or or he might not continue to to jump up level after level after level but he's still going to be a useful player for the United States and likely for his club team wherever he ends up. So everything's fine with Weston McKenney, but this is just just an example of an area that he could improve. Yeah, and, and I think I'm I'm making it sound harsher again, maybe just because of the negative player ranking. I, it's a, it's a foolish thing, Joe. I shouldn't worry about that. But I think that like that I'm just trying to get the idea that like if he tightens that up, if he gets better and better on the ball, he becomes indispensable because I think yeah. the defensive work, as you pointed out is already so good that it does a lot of work that other players won't do. Artur, for example, the one that I had written down uh, in the 52nd minute, Artur sort of steps out because I think he he thinks he's supposed to step out to then allow the like the front line to apply more pressure. And 
leaves his mark. And Weston McKinney on that left side, as you mentioned, spots that, spots that now there is a Roma player with no one around him, like within like 20 yards or so in between the lines. And if that ball goes in, he's going to turn, he's going to go up the defense, and it's going to lead to a very good counterattacking opportunity. And McKinney sprints from his man to that mark, and then the ball doesn't end up getting played. It gets recycled back out wide. And it absolutely would have been played. Actually, that one might be the one where he wins the ball. He intercepts the ball off the player because he puts him under pressure immediately. There's another one where he sort of checks in in that exact moment and uh, and Romar are forced to move the ball around. But that defensive awareness where he is still checking and then making the play, I think is the thing that like Andrea Pirlo really likes about Weston McKinney. And I hope he continues to get better at that as well. And then he becomes the greatest player in the world. I think that's what we're working towards, Joe. No, that seems fair. I actually cool. can't really see it playing out any other way. <laughs> All right, so I want to hear about uh, your your negative feelings towards player rankings for a moment. Player ratings, excuse me. Yeah, they're just they're just not good. They're not <laughs> they're not a good indicator of how oh, that's good. It mean, basically good. is. That's my thesis and my conclusion. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're just not a good, accurate indicator of how a player actually plays. Soccer is so difficult to quantify. Tons of people with PhDs are trying to figure this out. I don't think. An app, I mean, I know people, smart people develop those things. I don't think the way that they choose to add, you know, value and the way they choose to calculate value in FOTMOB or in who scored or whatever it is even mm-hmm. are accurate in terms of how valuable players actually are on the field. McKenney only played 65 minutes in this game. If he played 90 minutes, he probably would have had a higher rating just because he'd been on the field for longer and connected more passes. It's just, it's just not a good enough indicator of whether or not a player did good things. So that's my that's my little bit that's my little rant there. I forgot the word rant, so I guess that means I need to stop talking. <laughs> uh you can stop talking because I will take us in a different direction unless you have anything else to add about Weston McKinney. Take us forward, Taylor. All right. I'm going to take us to Dortmund, where we have a situation brewing. Uh, <laughs> Dortmund lose on the weekend. They're currently sixth. Uh, they did not look particularly good against Freiburg. There's a very good Raphael Honigstein article on The Athletic about sort of the precarious position that Dortmund are in. This will eventually relate to Gio Reyna, but first I kind of wanted to talk about this a little bit because the situation is we know they've they fired their manager. Uh, Eden Terzic has stepped in to be the interim manager. Marco Rosa of Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, it's a lot of seems to be, and evidently and reportedly, but Marco Rosa seems to be the heir apparent at Dortmund, but is obviously still with Gladbach right now. Gladbach, who are in the Champions League spots, so that could be awkward. Um, and so Dortmund know they can't pull the trigger now. They know they have to wait till the summer uh, if and when they're going to bring Rosa in, which means they're sort of stuck with Terzic because the argument is if they get rid of him with Dortmund underperforming, it looks like things are not going to play, and it looks like they're in even more of a crisis situation. It's another manager they have to bring in. If they do want Rosa, they're going to have to bring in somebody short term and are there like proven enough managers who would take that gig for a few months? I don't think so. So they find themselves in a very difficult situation. And I guess the idea is that basically Terzic is doing a good job of making everybody happy, but almost to the extent that it's then making people feel complacent and you're not getting the the fight you need, the drive you need. And there's another argument that a team that kind of routinely, consistently finished second or third to Bayern Munich every season, regardless of what they do, that breeds complacency. Honigstein, I'm basically paraphrasing his entire article here, but the point he made that I thought was really interesting is that, like, should Roman Berkey still be Borussia Dortmund's starting goalkeeper? Probably not. And this is a goalkeeper that we used to joke was just like, like gonna concede at the near post at least once every couple games. That that was just his vulnerability. It was just what he wasn't very good at. So too coming off his line. And then you think about that for a moment. Can a team who have a, 
a good but not great goalkeeper for as long as as Dortmund have? Can they really be conceivable title title challengers? I don't think so. And that is a, a problem for this Dortmund squad is how do you get the veterans performing, get the youngsters coming through, but still show that you're a club that can develop talent and challenge for the title. They're at a little bit of a difficult situation right now. I will assume they'll get out of it. I don't think they're in danger of relegation or anything like that. But all that is to say that Dortmund are not in the strongest position right now, Joe. Yeah, it's a mess. I think that's how you began. And if it's not, it's basically what you said. They're yep. in a really tough spot right now. They, The whole Marco Rosa situation is fascinating because do you really leave a team who's in position to be in the Champions League next season for a team that's right. not? That's, I mean, that is just an, a conversation that I never expected to be having regarding Dortmund. And their problems in terms of the club and the structure right now are even bleeding out onto the field a little bit. They yep. haven't been a very good team on the field. They're still creating chances. They're still doing fine things, but they're not, they're not playing at an elite level right now. They're not playing at a top four level in the Bundesliga. And this past performance from them over the weekend or, or, or this past week is, is another example of that. Uh, I, I agree. And I will like use a sort of clunky analogy based on real world experience. Uh, my wireless mic needs new batteries. I think I finally changed it, but for the last like two days, it has needed new batteries. And for me, it's always an exercise in like, at what point am I so frustrated by it constantly disconnecting that I will go downstairs and get batteries? And it tends to take longer than I would like. But this, this analogy to continue it is sort of Dortmund to me, especially in this game, uh, this past weekend, because you would see them do Dortmund things. They would work really hard, win the ball back, and then it would be a series of one touch passes. And then suddenly the batteries would die and Dortmund just didn't have numbers. They didn't have people making runs. It would be a heavy touch or a sloppy pass and they would just turn the ball over. And it routinely was this. They were going at 100 percent and looked totally good. And then the batteries died and all the ideas dried up and nothing really happened. And so that does, in my mind, extend to Gio Reyna. I've sent you two clips, I think. The first one is is sort of a good moment of this where he gets the ball. It's. Like a little bit improvised because he's trying to get around players and he does end up doing that. He combines with Holland, but even then it's not the Dortmund that we've seen in the past where Reyna uses his skill to get away from a defender. Now another defender has to close. And because that defender has now had to close and vacate space, a Dortmund player will immediately go occupied and the ball goes there. So then another defender has to step out or maybe two do because now they're feeling more panicked and that opens up space and it becomes this domino effect that leads to really good shooting opportunities for Dortmund. And in this game, in this moment, even when Reyna does dribble out of pressure and does play that ball into Holland, it ends up just sort of being a stagnant attack because you don't have as much inventiveness in the attack. You don't have as many runs. You don't have as much uh, uncertainty being created. And so it ends up just being Dortmund moving the ball around again at the top of the box and trying to find their way through, but not with that ruthless efficiency uh, we've seen from them in the past. And so you contrast that with later on in the game. The second clip I sent Joe was... Dorman working really, really hard to win the ball back, and they do. And then I, th I think it's Hummels, it might have been Emre Jean, but either way, they win the ball back, and then they try to play a ball to Reyna, who doesn't expect the ball to be coming, and it's sort of driven at him, and he miscontrols, and then Dortmund have to improvise, and they are the ones who are chasing at that point. And Dortmund sort of turn a, what would normally be a very vicious counterattacking opportunity, into them having to chase around, and I think it ends up in a foul, that like now they've given up possession and a good attacking opportunity and have conceded a free kick and killed time and let their opponent build in confidence. And I just think the the disjointed nature and the weird battery suddenly dying of like 
like aspect of Dortmund these days is very confusing for a person who isn't even a Dortmund fan. And for people who are, I'm going to guess they're slightly more concerned than I am. It's hard because I want to be fair to Dortmund in their game on Saturday. They lose that game two to one, but mm-hmm. they were down two goals. And, and so Freiburg, Freiburg scored in the 49th minute and the 52nd minute. And then Freiburg just stopped attacking. They really packed it in. And that made it extremely difficult for Dortmund to penetrate and to get into the final third and create chances. Yeah, they score a goal later on in the second half to cut the deficit in half. But it's it, that's just a difficult attacking situation. It's going to make any true, soccer game difficult. And so I do want to add that that justification for Dortmund slightly. But I still do think there are very real issues, both structurally and on the field with how they're playing. And I think even some of those issues are either affecting Giorena or he's not doing dramatic things to fix those issues. But I think that's a, a big ask of someone who is still a very, very, very young player. Exactly. And this goes to, uh, again, Hanekstein's point, which is that when you have a club like Bayern Munich and Hansi Flick takes over, it's sort of the same situation of a manager who didn't get the squad performing, seemed to be at odds with some of the players, the chemistry wasn't right, you have this interim manager come in, but it's still Bayern Munich, who are ruthless winners, have a good defense, know how they want to play, and have proven veterans. You look at Dortmund, and they have Mats Hummels, yes, they have Emre Jean. your veterans start to fall off a little bit, and Marco Royce in this game, I thought, was was not particularly good. I think he ends up getting subbed out for uh, Mkuku. So, like, those moments, it just, it's you need the uh, Mukuku, excuse me, not Mkuku. That just to be clear, two different players. Uh, <laughs> but like, it, like when you have your veterans sort of giving way to youngsters in hopes that they fi- figure something out, I agree with you that that's not. Giorena shouldn't be the one to re- be picking up the team and being a leader. But if you don't have other people doing it, you do start to suffer a little bit. And if you don't have a manager who maybe has the ability to get those players to do that, to inspire that change, to motivate, to even just have the like the idea that this is our going to be our next manager, so we better get on board. If it all feels very transitional, it doesn't allow you to have the stability you need to then perform. So I think Dortmund definitely have some issues that they need to figure out and hopefully get everybody back performing. That said, uh, maybe a final like grand assault here would be that I think Freiburg's goal probability was 0.2. Dortmund's in this game was 1.5, and that is not how things finished up. So maybe it was Dortmund being a little bit unlucky and then just kind of panicking, being frustrated by the situation, and maybe they write the ship just by their own talent. But it's it's one where I understand now why they are desperate for the season to end, to get a new manager in, to figure things out, because it's tough to be the Champions League caliber team that is also really good at developing young players if you're not in the Champions League. So we'll see what Dortmund do. I'm going to guess they're going to be trying desperately to get into that fourth spot. Uh, certainly not staying in the sixth spot. But for now, Joe, anything else on Borussia Dortmund? I have one thing specifically on Reyna, if that's okay Please. with you. So yes. in this game, he was used as a right winger, which is fine. He's been used in that role a lot this season, but I don't think he was set up to succeed in that role by his manager because of who his right back was on that side. It wasn't a bomb up the sideline mm-hmm. kind of right back. I'm going to get into the attack. It was Emre Chan who sat yeah. deeper, which then left Gio Reyna wide. Reyna had to, to occupy the width on the right side of Dortmund's attack, which is not where his best spot is on the field. He's fine as a right winger who can tuck inside or Mm -hmm. as even a central attacking midfielder with structure behind him. 
but he's not an out-and-out winger. He's not a, I'm going to stand on the sideline, Pep Guardiola kind of winger. That's just not his game, and he was asked to do that in this game, and I don't think he was set up to succeed because of what he was asked to do. Dude, Joe, thank you for that, because I... I almost in the beginning of my notes are like, I think he's playing a different position because I see him in like interior a lot, but then having to check back out wide yeah. and I didn't really get it. And you're absolutely right that what that normally would be is he starts wide, he goes more central because you've got overlapping runs. And so he can then afford to kind of be more central. He can combine with Erling Holland or with Michael Royce, or if he has that overlapping run, he can play it wide. But I absolutely kept seeing him go central and then have to drip, like almost reset back out wide. And even if he did get the ball, now he's just not building in the most familiar position. I couldn't figure out why. You're absolutely right. It's because Emerjan isn't going to go bombing down that right wing. And if he does, it's going to be not a consistent thing, but a more intermittent thing. And if it is that, then you, the attacker, if you're Reina in this situation, can't really plan for that. You can't prepare for him to be automatically, I know he's going to be down that right-hand side, so if nothing else, I'll just play it without even looking, and that pass will be on. You have to look, you have to think, you have to wait, you have to slow down, and that's all part and parcel of what we're talking about. So, Joe, I think that's a really important point. Thank you for making it. Well, thank you for uh, puffing up my ego. I appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, We will be back to talk more Americans. We've got several, several more to discuss. But first, a word from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joe, so we have talked McKinney, we have talked Reyna. Whom should we talk about next? Oh, let's talk about Yunus Musa Taylor. Yeah, He comes off the bench in the 65th <laughs> minute of Valencia's 1-1 draw with Athletic Bilbao on Sunday, and he was awesome. To put it lightly, uh, I think that is definitely underselling his contributions, especially in the first few minutes of this game. But I just want to start out by saying he he got on the field and started playing so well that uh, Bilbao had to make a sub on on the side that Musa was attacking on. So Musa was on the right side. Bilbao made a sub on their left side to stop the bleeding. I think that is the perfect illustration of the impact that Musa was able to make in this game. Uh, he made such an impact that when I showed uh, my wife the kind of compilation of his clips, she was sort of dumbfounded as to how the United States had such a good player, like eligible for them. <laughs> and a point she made, which I will give her credit for, the way he runs, like the best way I can describe it, and it really does, like I encourage people to watch footage of him running at full speed, he glides. Yep. He really genuinely looks like he yep. is ice skating. And part of that is because he's so fast, but it's just because of, he keeps his, it's like the, the Zidane stride where he doesn't fully lift that foot all the way up. It's just, it's a very different gait, but it makes it look like he is just skating down the field and simultaneously effortlessly set like uh 
uh, separating. Whew, not not. You got it. That was a different word. Thank you. Uh, yes, yeah, separating from his uh, defender and. Just that mobility and that acceleration, it already makes him exciting. But then that he has the control he does and the awareness he does and the distribution. Oh, boy, do I like Yunus Musa. And he used almost all of those attributes to to make a Musa run, a Musa highlight reel run. We haven't had one in a couple weeks, <laughs> a Musa run. but yeah. it's back. And I do think this is a very fitting way to describe that. It was a Musa run. It's the 67th yep. minute. Valencia played the ball. It's a simple pass over to Musa, who's positioned wide on the right side in Valencia's own half. So there's a long way to go to get to goal, but that's fine if you're Yunus Musa, apparently. So Musa gets on the ball. He beats two Bilbao players with his first three touches, then feints past another one, drives into the box, cuts the ball back from his right foot to his left foot, and takes a shot with his weak foot. The shot doesn't make it on target, but the run, the composure, the patience, the gliding run, the way he moves, gliding is the perfect word for it. Everything about this play, except the the end product, except the shot, was literally perfect. Maybe he could have played the ball in the box instead of cutting it back, or maybe he could have done something else instead of shooting. But if we take that away, all the other pieces of this move from Yunus Musa were spot on. Yeah. I, I, I heard everything you said, Joe. I'm still trying to think of a good, like, alliterative phrase that is either Yunus or Musa, and then we need a second word that, like, shows what he's doing, which is that driving run forward that, like, causes terror in the opposition. The the Musa, like, maneuver? I don't know. Oh, Ma- the Musa meander? But that's wrong, because it's not a meander. <laughs> so I, I look forward to listeners with their suggestions. But we need that, because I think it's a thing that we're going to keep seeing for Valencia. I think it's a thing we'll continue to see for the United States. And I need a term so I can yell it excitedly as he rounds a Mexican defender with uh, with ice skating ease and plays in a uh, like an inch perfect cross. And there's uh, we just learned today that there will be a friendly that the U.S. play in the March FIFA window. I believe that's a FIFA window against Northern Ireland in Europe. It's possible that that's the next time we see Yunus Musa with the United States because I I think that could be a European base camp for the U.S. I don't know mm-hmm. exactly how that's going to work. I don't think Berhalter has told us yet. But that March 28th day on your calendar, circle it, highlight it, uh, write Yunus Musa's name all over it, because hopefully that's when we're going to get to see him in red, white, and blue again. Side note to that, like, we have, in the past, we've had situations in which we have a, like, more, we have the capability of having a more domestic-based roster and then a European-based roster. And there are always, like, strengths and weaknesses to both of them, such that you could always make an argument that one would beat the other. I think a lot of people would end up erring on the side of Europe is going to win that battle. This time around, if we're picking a European roster with how many Americans moved... Is it fair to say that it is like definitely the case that right now the players in Europe would beat the players in Major League Soccer? Because even the oh, players yeah. we saw in the January camp, several of them have now moved to Europe. It, it, that that camp could be a very strong one. I, I don't pity Northern Ireland. No, I don't think you should pity them. That's in a that's in a difficult. They're going to be in a difficult spot because the European. Yeah. Contingent, I'm not sure I said that right, but I appreciate you rolling with it. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if I rolled with it properly <laughs> either. The European contingent right now for the U.S. is is stronger than yeah. the domestic you know, contingent by a sizable margin. And guys like Yunus Musa, who I think will play as a central midfielder, not as a right-sided attacker, not as a right midfielder or a right winger. I think Berhalter views Musa as a central midfielder. We've seen him in that spot before. 
Musa is is so good and so ready to contribute in a spot like that. With Valencia as well, he just hasn't gotten looks there under uh, Javi Gracia. So I think I think that's where he projects. I wanted to slide that little plug in there because I've seen some some disagreement about that online and on Twitter especially. But if he's a part of that group in March, I'm just going to be really happy. And that's what I want, Joe. I just want you to be happy. Thank you. Uh, any more any more Musa happiness? We could go through one or two other moments, but I think that that Musa Musa maneuver is that what we landed on at least temporarily. Sure. The, manu- the the Musa maneuver, yeah. The main <laughs> Musa maneuver that that you and I kind of went through already. I think we'll do for now. All right. Uh, well, what did you make then? I sent you a couple clips of Timothy Weah's performance for Lille. We should note top of the table Lille and Timothy Weah doing things for that side. Uh, I, I think it's like, I've always been excited about Timothy West since he started getting minutes for PSG. Then he moves to Celtic and seemed like he was just fine there, but we haven't seen as much from him. He has the injuries. Now he's back and he's another player who, when he gets on the ball, he has a moment. You're like, Oh wow, that was really, really good. That's really, really exciting. And I went to write it down and then I keep watching more clips of him. And that just is sort of the norm for him. And it has me incredibly excited about Timothy Weah as well. I was already pretty hyped on him, but that hype is now even more elevated. Joe, from what you've seen of him, what do you make of Timothy Weah's performance and development thus far? Based on his current performance for his club and and relative to the other players that play in a position similar to his for their clubs, Timothy Weah is the right winger for the U.S. right now. That is his spot to lose. Jordan Morris could win it. Gio Reyna could win it. I'm not saying that 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 isn't the case. I think ultimately it's going to be about how they perform in camp when Burhalter yeah. gets a look at them. So this conversation is probably meaningless and the direction I've taken us down is probably not no, a man. wise one. I'm good but, with it. But man, Timothy Way is playing at a level right now that is unmatched by, I think, actually any winger in the U.S. pool. Am I Dude, way I'm- off on that? No, in fact, I'm really glad you said that because that was like where I was with it. But I was sort of like, I'm just buying into the hype. Like I've watched some highlights of him. I'm being like, like this is way too dramatic. Let's wait and see Jordan Morris sustained body of work. But man, Timothy Weah seems to be doing a lot of things that have to make Greg Berhalter start to look at that depth chart. Because in this game, he comes in. He's a late substitute against Nantes. And he, I, I'm trying to like get over that one as quickly as I can because French pronunciation is French pronunciation. But he comes in and does just so much work in the on the defensive side of things, but then he's popping out, he's hassling defenders from there on the ball, but then simultaneously dropping in to make sure he's covering his mark. And then when he does do really good defensive work, which was pretty routine, he complements it by immediately doing good attacking work. And so the, I think the opening goal for Lille, uh, it might have been their second goal, but either way, he wins the ball back, he forces a turnover, and then it's a series of one-touch passes, of which he is a part, that leads to a one-touch shot for the goal. But it's so quick and so rapid, and it starts with really good defensive work, smart positioning, a good tackle, and then quick passing, quick movement, good runs off the ball. Like, it's it's everything you want from that right winger, doing the defensive work, but then punishing the opponent for mistakes. Again, I think Greg Berhalter sees that and thinks... Yeah, I'll have some of that. He has a moment in the second half as well where he does the same thing. He gets the ball at midfield. He gets round the defender with the ball, mind you, still is able to outrun them, uh, has a really good centering pass, then sort of hangs out on that left wing, waits for the ball, charges to the back post. Definitely should have done better. Joe, I think I sent you the clip and you might be able to hear me say oof in the background because oh, yeah. it wasn't a great finish. I think it was sort of if he gets any body part to it other than what he got. He bundles it into the goal. Instead, he put it over. So maybe finishing still to be desired. But the the movement, the awareness, and then the sort of crashing the post at the right moment, if he adds a slightly better finish to that one, uh, I'm rubbing my hands together with even more glee. 
So you know that whole Tyler Adams position debate that we've we had and kind of have been having, not just you and I, but kind of the whole American soccer sphere yeah. has been having for several years now. I think I think that needs to go away. And I think we need to say Adams is a six, at least with the national team. But I mean, we can keep arguing about that, too. I'm fine with that. But my point is, I think that debate is now no longer the top debate. I think the new debate should be where is Timothy Weah's best yeah. position? Because in I this game, this too, man. Yeah. in this game, Taylor, of just the two clips that you sent me and from what I've seen, Weah made an impact on the left, he made an impact on the right, and he made an impact in the middle. And this is coming off the bench in a very, not a very short, but a pretty short substitute appearance. Yeah. Weah has the ability, I've said it on this show before, he has the ability to contribute in all five vertical channels of the field. He brings so much value, and I, in a way, I... uh I'm jealous that Greg Berhalter gets to figure out where to use him, but also, man, that's not an easy call to make. No, it's really, really not. And and to your point about using him centrally, that is a thing we've seen where they go with more of a 4-4-2 and he's one of two central strikers. He tends to be the one who, I think because of the pace, is tasked with, oh, those two center backs have maybe been on the ball working back and forth a little bit too comfort, like comfortably. You go charging out and make them like play under pressure. So that's, you know, that's good. That's what you want your number nine to do is step out and, and sort of cut off half the field once the right center back passes to the left center back. He did a really good job of stepping between them and effectively killing that side of the field so that now they're, they are isolated a bit more. But it was just also then the way he did certain things that I was like, again, if you're Greg Berhalter, the way he starts maybe 20 yards further up the field is stretching the line and then sprints back, checks in and pulls the center back with him and then just has a quick little layoff, rounds that center back and now is back into space or just simply opens up the space for someone else to run into. But he was very mobile leading that line, not just trying to get in behind, not just trying to stretch them, but dropping in and facilitating possession play. I think you're absolutely right. He could be used in a couple of different positions. And and uh yeah, I don't really know what I would do if I were Greg Berhalter. So I look forward to him figuring that out and not. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm not qualified to make that call. And uh, Greg is. So we're going to leave. it there. <laughs> All right. Uh, Joe, who do you feel more comfortable talking about then? I feel slightly more comfortable talking about Matthew Hoppy, But man, I'm okay. switching for answers on him too, Taylor. Uh Oh, well, okay. why, why is that? So Matthew Hoppy started and played 79 minutes and Schalke's three uh-huh. nothing loss to Leipzig on Saturday. To give some context here, it was a pretty typical Schalke game, which is to say that they had 36% possession and one shot on target. So pretty classic, pretty standard stuff. In this game, Hoppy was pretty well contained by Upamecano and Willy Orban. He did win one or two balls in the air. He made some sort of effective runs in behind, but he didn't have support. And even when he did, those two center backs for Leipzig really, really ate up all of Schalke's attacks. Again, Mm. one shot on target in this game. And so I don't think we can take a whole lot out of this one other than saying that Hoppy isn't an elite Bundesliga striker because I think that's the only kind of striker that can score and really make an impact against Leipzig, especially up in Meccano and Willy Orban. I don't think we can take a whole lot out of this game. So instead, Taylor, I went back and reviewed the numbers. I went back to look at where we've come since Hoppy, Hoppy Mania, Hoppy, I don't know, we can workshop that again later. Hoppy Hysteria. Hoppy Hysteria, that's, man, that's, do you come up with that off the fly? I did, I did. Yeah, wow. It's the, it's the improv background, man. When you take two years of improv in high school, these things happen. Didn't know that. We'll talk about that either later on the show or off mic. We'll revisit that maybe on another show. Um, wow. Did I'm, I mention that I was a dork? Because I'm a dork. Yeah. No, that's that's good. Is this a good time to say that I also did high school theater? Because if, if it wasn't, I don't think I should have said that just so I could have had the, the upper leg on you, the upper hand. I'm mixing my metaphors a lot today. That's that's a really interesting ah, it's one. It's fine. It's fine. I'm just rubbing off on you. It's cool. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> to look at to look at hop I already forgot. Just to look at Hoppy and, and where he's come since his hop streak. That's that's what I'm going with. <laughs> Back in mid January, where he had five goals in three games, three consecutive games. Not only has Hoppy stopped scoring, but he stopped getting on the end of chances. He's only taken two shots in Schalke's last three Bundesliga games, and those two shots, according to FB Ref, only totaled only totaled a whopping 0.1 expected goal. Yeah. So so he was not even close to generating one expected goal or or even half of an expected goal because two shots adding to one XG would be pretty impressive. Schalke just aren't creating quality chances right now. Hoppy can't do things on his own. And even if he was an elite striker, I don't think he could do it on his own. And so I kind of lay all this groundwork just to say, I still have no idea how good Hoppy is. I don't know if he's not performing because of Schalke and how bad they are. I Part of me thinks that that goal-scoring streak was a mirage, and actually a lot of me thinks that. I, I don't think Hoppy is at the level that maybe we thought he was, or maybe it seemed like he was heading towards back in January. But again, it's still all a little bit too early to tell any of this. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I, and I think I know where you're coming from with this one because I, like, I share the confusion about Schalke and what they're trying to do. And is it a Schalke issue? It's what we talked about when Weston McKinney was still there, obviously. And like, is he limited because of his own ability or is it because of the way they play? And with Hoppy, in contrast to a lot of the players we're talking about, when we started doing this format is sort of looking at how players are evolving. What are they getting better at? What do they need to continue to work on? What are they maybe regressing on? With Hoppy, because Shocker are so inconsistent and sort of all over the place, it's hard to get a read because there are times when he looks really good and he looks like their best player. And there are times when he looks like a player who's playing in a sort of erratic, disconnected team and is making erratic, disconnected decisions. So I saw both of those. I saw him still doing that sort of aggressive running, trying to take people on, trying to make something happen, at the very least trying to buy time for his teammates to get around him to be in more attacking positions. But I also saw him trying no-look passes that didn't come off or overhitting passes 30 yards when nobody was running onto them. And it and it goes back to the, like, is that a Schalke thing of people just don't quite know what they're supposed to do at any given moment? Or is it a hoppy thing that he's trying to do too much and he himself is so focused on it, improvising in the moment that he's not playing within a system? Or is it maybe a combination of of the two, I think it's still, as you said, too early to have the answers. So in the end, it, it still feels very like, okay, that was good, but I don't know about that one. Like, I have a harder time constructing a narrative or understanding a sort of like process of development, but instead it feels like it's a lot of bits and pieces that I'm trying to connect together into some through line, essentially. It's hard. In this game, he looked, Hoppy looked like a kid playing against grown men. And that's what a lot of players look like when you're playing against RB Leipzig. Yeah. But that's still the reality of the situation. So we know that he's not an elite Bundesliga player right now. And that was never in question. We also know that he's not getting on the end of a lot of chances and he's not likely going to continue scoring goals at the rate he was scoring them before. And so now we're just left to wait and see what happens with Schalke. Are they going to stay in the Bundesliga next season? How does Hoppy fit into all of that? We're really the only thing we can do at this point is just sit back, continue to watch and learn about his game, but really just wait and see what happens with his career. And what you can do then, uh, as as I did this weekend, is watch his performances, ideally when he's playing other Americans or clubs that have other Americans. So then you can kill two birds with one sco- stone, and in this case, or <laughs> scone if you want. And in this case, you can watch Tyler Adams do things. Uh, what he did in this game was play right wing back. Joe, were you surprised by that one? Not at all, Taylor. We've seen okay. a lot of that recently. I'm just still stuck on that scone thing, so you can keep going, but I'm going to be thinking about scones. <laughs> sure. Uh, so we saw Tyler Adams at right wing back. It is a thing, as you said, we've seen before. What I 
felt like I saw more of in this game, maybe just because it's Shaka, but especially as the game went on, was him being more involved in the attacks in a like natural, automatic way. In the beginning of the game, I felt like we continued to see Angelino on the left-hand side, getting involved, getting into the attack, creating chances, crossing the ball. It's what we've come to expect. I think Tyler Adams, when he's playing the right-back, right-wing-back spot, it seems to be the one that is tasked with staying back just a little bit more. He he joins the attack, but it doesn't seem like he is automatically on that front foot, such that some of my criticisms in the past have been that he is then, like, in trying to react, he's having to, like, close gaps at 100% speed, and then that makes him vulnerable to just, like, one quick touch bypassing that press. Or he's joining the attack, but he's having to bomb forward to give another option as opposed to being in the vicinity to then be an immediate option. And I saw in this game, as it went on, him being more and more advanced in the field, staying wide, but then coming central in defense, but sometimes coming central in the attack, and staying, like, more forward more readily that was that felt like a new thing to me but maybe that's just me paying more attention to Tyler Adams in this game than say Matthew Hoppy what about you Joe is that a thing you've seen from him or did you see any sort of progression in the way he's been playing it's an interesting question because Adams' role is so varied under Julian Nagelsmann we've seen him push up at times this season maybe a little bit but also he does tend to be the more reserved wide player in contrast with Angelino so I think I think that point you made is spot on We've also seen Adams tuck inside some during possession. And so every game I watch Leipzig, and I didn't watch Leipzig in this game super closely, so I don't have all the answers here. Mm-hmm. But every game, you almost have to be paying attention to the little intricacies of how Adams is moving, simply because Nagelsmann has used him in so many different ways. Yeah. But I, I will say then, like, like if we're, we're doing this format so we can see what players are doing from week to week and sort of see how they're, they're improving what they are working on. And one of my concerns with him in the past was that sometimes he's splitting that difference. So let's say you've got like a left winger and you've got a left wing back. He will sometimes try to kind of be between the two. But then if the ball goes from the center back to that left wing back, he then has to really get forward to apply immediate uh, pressure. And in a couple of different instances, that what I was saying earlier is that because he's trying to close that gap, the defender can take a touch around him and play it forward, or sometimes he overcommits and has to foul. In this game, there were still a few of those moments, but I saw far more frequently he took a, a, a better pursuit angle or he was a little bit closer to that uh, left wing back and then could close that gap, could make a play. Uh, the one I think I sent you, he forces the defender to turn and he ends up dribbling out of bounds and it's a throw into Leipzig. And I thought his pressure in those moments was more consistent and less sort of flailing. It was less like, oh, I'll concede a foul, but I've stopped the play. I think it was just more restrained. And that to me felt like development. It felt like positive growth. So I liked what I saw from him defensively on the attack. I still would like to see him contribute more effectively. It's still like to the Matthew Hoppy point, it feels like he is popping up and trying to help create, but it doesn't feel as much like there are dedicated patterns, there's dedicated rhythms to what he's trying to do. If he's in a situation, maybe he'll go forward. But for the most part, I would see him maybe continue a run into the box, but a lot of times he would start that run and then check back out wide. And I do wonder if he continues that run, does he get a through pass? Does he take a defender with him and open up room for somebody else? I think now what I'm focused on is if he is going to be that right wing back slash right back for Leipzig, how does he become more involved in the attack in a way that I think that they would probably like to see him be? I honestly don't know where or how Adams can help Leipzig in the attack. He's not a super skilled 1v1 player. He's not an excellent passer. 
His movement is good and it's smart, but it's not like, oh, I'm going to go drift in between the lines and get the ball in the half turn and then burst into the attack. It's not really any yeah. of those things. And so then the question still is, well, how how does he become an impact offensive player? Yeah. And I just have no answer for that question, Taylor. Well, maybe maybe you don't need to because maybe you've sort of answered it by saying it's a really difficult question to answer. And so maybe it is just that like that is a a useful like like bonus when he does get involved in the attack. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is just that Angelino is going to be that sort of the the wing back who does get forward more readily, like Atrafikimi did for Dortmund and now does for Inter, where like the entire right side of the field is just his to patrol. That's how it feels like with Angelino. Maybe with Tyler Adams, it is primarily defensive, primarily keeping the ball moving. But if the situation requires us to have more attackers, then you can get involved. Then you can try to make some runs to open up options. Like maybe that is how they utilize him. And I don't think that's the worst thing because you're right that if it's not a skill set that he has and it's not like they're going to then turn him into a right winger who scores a bunch of goals, maybe it isn't that useful of a pursuit to try to develop those attacking plays and that attacking instinct. Maybe it's better to play to his strengths and have him drift more centrally in those defensive moments and keep the ball moving, pop out wide if he needs to, make smart runs if he can, but it's not the end-all be-all of can he attack, will he score goals, because he does so much else effectively. So maybe that's the answer, Joe, is that we we sort of have it, is that he's going to focus on the defensive side, keeping the ball moving, being a sort of metronome for Leipzig, and then maybe every now and then occasionally possibly getting involved in the attack. That could very well be the answer, but I'm still torn because I want to see him become like we were talking about with Weston McKennie earlier. We want to see these players continue to become more and more well-rounded and more and more useful. And I think with Adams, the biggest area left for him to explore is his ability to impact a game offensively. But again, maybe you're right. Maybe that will never come like N'Golo. Wow, that was a tough one. N'Golo Conte? N'Golo Conte. There it is. Third time's the charm. With Conte (laughs) in the Premier League, he's not an elite offensive player. And and we saw limitations of that under Frank Lampard. We're probably going to see limitations of that under Thomas Tuchel now. And so I guess my slight concern is with a player like Tyler Adams, he's always going to have a ceiling. And and because right now it seems like you know we don't really know where he fits offensively or how he brings value, that's always going to limit him as a player. It's not to say he's going to be a, a bad player or anything like that. Conte is an incredible player. Adams mm-hmm. is kind of in that same mold and in that conversation as well. But I do want to see over time if we'll see Adams develop the offensive side of his game. Yeah, no, I think I think because to your point, like, yes, it's great to have N'Golo Conte is a world class defensive midfielder who does so much so effectively. But you're right that if you're a team that wants everybody in the midfield getting involved in the attack, he doesn't fit that system. So then it is about finding the systems that work really, really well. And I would say for a player of Tyler Adams age, you want him to have the diversified skill set such that he can fit in with lots of different teams as opposed to he becomes a specialized, he fits this system really, really, really well. But if you're asking him to do extra things, that's not necessarily his strong suit. I, I agree with you. I think that's where you run into some like obstacles. And so I would like to see him maybe as we go forward, just see how he does get more more involved in the attack or what he does to create more attacking chances. Maybe we'll see that and maybe we won't. But either way, I think we'll have an answer. So that's where I'm comfortable leaving it with Tyler Adams. Unless you have other things you'd like to say, Joe, because we can always talk more about Tyler Adams. That's fine with me. No, that does it for me. Thank you cool. for uh, for opening the door for me, though. <laughs> um, I will then open the door for you to mention any other players you wanted to get to or talk about, uh, however briefly. Quick hits on Jordan Morris and Brendan Please. Aronson. They cool. both came off the bench in their respective leagues with their respective teams. Morris with Swansea City, Brendan Aronson with RB Salzburg. Both of their teams won two to nothing. 
and they both looked pretty good. Morris probably looked a little bit better than Aronson. Morris came off the bench in the 75th minute and was active. He was running. He's been a part of that front two in both of his bench appearances for Swansea City. And so he's he's done some good things. He was in between the lines a little bit. He was getting in behind the back line a little bit. I was generally encouraged by what I saw from Jordan Morris. Brendan Aronson maybe didn't have quite uh, quite the level of eventfulness in his little cameo off the bench, but he's still making those appearances off the bench, and he's still doing some good things when he comes on. He looks fast, and he looks capable, and I think starts will come for both of these players as the fixtures continue to be congested and as the season continues. All right. Well, as the season continues, Joe and I will continue to talk about Americans abroad. Uh, I am talking about Americans abroad when it comes to goal scoring on this week's Soccer 101 episode. That should be out uh, this evening, Tuesday night, or maybe Monday or Wednesday morning. We shall see. Uh, then Ryan and I are going to be talking about that episode on our Stereo Live show again, 6 p.m. Thursday evening. I think Joe is going to be doing some moderating. So send oh, us yeah. your questions. Send us your ideas for 101 topics. Joe, we'll be back Tomorrow, as will I, to do some Champions League previewing. We've got two shows this week. Uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, we're going to be doing Leipzig, Liverpool, Barcelona, PSG. We'll preview those games. We'll answer your list of questions about those games and other Champions League questions you might have. Then on Thursday, we're going to do Sevilla, Dortmund, and Porto, Juve. So that should get you ready for the Champions League games next week. Next week, we're going to be trying to do a combination of reviewing the games that happened, previewing the games that are still to come. And then we've got Allocation Disorder, another episode. Episode Friday, but we did have their uh, labor negotiations. We have a deal podcast yesterday, so be sure to check that out. But that is all the housekeeping I have to do. Joe, anything else from you, including how is MLS Assist this week? What was the topic? Yeah, MLS Assist this week was me talking with data scientist Sam Goldberg to talk mm-hmm. about stats and trades and analytics and all of those things. Yeah, go check it out. Jordan and I are really, really, really happy that we're going to have a season and hopefully some <laughs> games in April or soon after that. So, yeah, we're going to continue to have episodes each Monday over on MLS Assist. If you were kind of giving us a distillation, is the is the basic thing about how teams value players and maybe like don't always value them wisely? Like wh- what was sort of the uh, the major focus that you all were looking at? The trades conversation was was super interesting to me because I'd never even thought about any of this before. And that's why I'm not a data scientist, everybody. (laughs) But the idea was MLS has a lot of really strange assets that you can trade, like allocation money, like roster spots, draft picks, and players as well. And so Sam essentially figured out how to assign a value to each one of those things and a relative value for players based on their production. And then you can compare a value if you have a unified value for each asset you can compare how you're going to trade from from one team to another, how those assets are going to be valued from one team in MLS to another team. And so that was the second half of the episode after we talked about a metric called Davies. And so we really dug into how how Sam has now equipped teams to analyze trades. Joe, for my one-on-one episode, I was trying to track goal scores, and I had a spreadsheet with uh, numbers that I then used the auto-sum feature to add up for me. It sounds like this is slightly more complicated now than you two were talking about. <laughs> Slightly, but uh, to be honest, Taylor, I'm right there with you in terms of my Excel skill. I think we both pale in comparison relative to Sam. Uh, that sounds very, very likely. So credit to Sam. Joe, credit to you. Thank you very much for taking all the time to talk about all these many Americans with me today. You got it, Taylor. Anytime. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. And as I've already said, we'll be back with many more shows, a lot more soccer content this week. But for now, thank you again for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. 